Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Tim Lovejoy. Tim's a TV presenter and podcaster. He grew up in Hertfordshire and made his name fronting shows including Stalker AM and Something for the Weekend. These days, you can catch him on Channel 4's Sunday Brunch and also on his podcast, Dear Lovejoy. Tim lives in London and has three daughters who've all featured on his podcast during lockdown. I'll be talking to Tim today via video call. Welcome to the Marie Curie Couch, Tim. If it's okay with you, I'd like to ask if you could tell us about a significant death you've experienced in your life. Oh, well, um, it's my brother. He died. He was 37 years old, um, 16 years ago or something like that. Yeah, and he died of pancreatic cancer. It was um, uh, obviously extremely sad and traumatic for me and my family. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's life-changing for everyone involved. Just to go back, Tim, to that time, can we talk a bit about his diagnosis and some of the conversations you may or may not have had as a family? Yeah, he'd been having stomach pains for quite a long time. And um, well, when I say a long time, a few months, six months or so, he'd recently got married and um, he'd been on his honeymoon. He had to come home early because his stomach really hurt him. And he went to the doctors and they said there's more chance of him winning the lottery than anything serious being wrong with him. He was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, by the way, I don't have any uh, hate or animosity towards the doctors or the medical uh, profession because he was a young guy and he had pancreatic cancer, which is usually reserved for older people. So yeah, so he had, um, uh, he was just sort of went to see a doctor. They decided to do some tests. And then I got a call off my dad saying that um, my brother had a tumor. Um, and uh, so yeah, we came together as a family and um, started trying to work out what, what we could do. Um, and that is just horrible. So it's, I, I remember when I heard about it, just sort of, oh, I remember just putting myself up against a cupboard and sliding to the floor and just sitting there thinking about it for ages. Because the one thing with all these diagnoses, I think, is you always think things like this don't happen to us, my family. They happen to everybody else's family. Oh, yeah, you watch it on the the news or you see read magazines or you see articles or on the online and it's everybody else's family has these things they don't happen to you and you know my grandparents are all so healthy they will live so we're all going to live really old we're all going to live into our 90s and then something like that happens it's quite a strange feeling but you have a, a feeling of optimism that the medical profession will do something about it these days we we believe that everything can be cured 
people don't expect anyone to die anymore because because um, it's I mean it's a it's a tribute in a way to how much we've advanced um, in the world of medicine, but people do still die. So after after what sounds like that initial shock, as a family then there was a sort of feeling of optimism and focus on um his treatment and what happened next well yeah there was an optimism obviously um because you speak to the doctors and as uh, and you know we met the oncologist and he said look we're gonna we're gonna do all the treatments we can do and you know he's young and he's got a good fighting chance of this um I didn't really understand how it was pancreatic cancer, and I'm, I, I didn't really understand how uh, hopeless it is to try and deal with pancreatic cancer. I've been told latterly that the actual cancer in the—I don't know anything about cancer really—but the cancer inside the, the the pancreas, the pancreatic cancer, is quite easy to kill. You just can't get to it, and so unless they can cut it out early, then it's quite fatal to to get it. So, but we were—we had optimism, and we were all sort of thinking, oh, when does he start his chemo and, you know, and, and everybody just sort of usual thing, you come together and say, well, you know, we're going to fight this. You're going to do it. You're going to be okay. And, uh, usual state of affairs. I think that everybody goes through. Something along the way changed at some point. Yeah, it's, it's weird actually, because it was a really short time between his diagnosis and his death. However, the journey use that expression was felt so long because every day it's it's there and you're thinking about it and um you know there was a time where before we get to the the part where my brother was uh where they said there's nothing else we can do for you there was a time where my brother just felt very lonely and i think what happens when you get a diagnosis of cancer is you feel like you're the only one in the world with it. I'm only saying this is because that's what my brother experienced, you know. So I imagine other people out there who've got cancer will concur with this. Is that you? Just you think I'm the I'm the only person in the world who's got this cancer, and it becomes very lonely. Everybody else is living their lives, and I'm fighting this this disease. Um, and I spoke to a friend of mine who actually was in remission from cancer. And he said the really good thing to do is to to get you to places where you can meet other people with cancer. And um, we arranged for that to happen. And it was great, actually. It was a really good thing because he walked in there and um, it was this, I can't remember what it was called now, but it was a meeting and he walked in there and um, he realised, he said, I'm not giving up hope. So he's very positive about the the whole thing and I and so that was good and anyway one day the doctors said to us they said to him there's nothing more we can do for you we've tried everything and then sent him home and that was the worst well, apart from him actually dying I think that was the worst bit because the idea that you can't do anything is so surreal you know we live in a world where we can cure everything you know, we can put a new heart in you a new kidney in you you know you can we're not used to we don't understand the idea that a young man can die. It's, and it's, it's, it's sort of, it was well beyond my comprehension. And the idea that you're sent home to die, you, own, you can see your own fate. Most people don't know when they're going to die. And especially when you're young, you know, and you're sent home and said, literally, there's nothing we can do for you. You just got to sit there and wait and watch your body die. It was absolutely incredible. And 
numbing is the word. No one knew what to do. And it, it was sort of mixed emotions which happens. You have anger. Um, my anger was never towards the medical people though, because I knew the, the doctors and the oncologists and everything. I knew they were trying their hardest. There was anger towards why, why this had happened to my brother. And then there's, you know, the myriad emotions hit you. You don't know what to do. You then, you know, as a family, you don't know what to do. No one knows what to do. My brother felt very, obviously very sad. He then started searching, I suppose, for the meaning of life and what it all meant for him. And um, I went into a sort of mode where I was like, well, this can't be right. You can't just send someone home to die. There must be another way to look at this. So I started phoning around and asking people and I heard about um, the Bristol Cancer Clinic and a, a woman called Rosie Daniels who was uh, doing great things with holistic medicine. And um, I thought, you know, that might help my brother. So. I phoned up and, I, and, and she had a clinic in Harley Street. So I managed to get a cancellation, which was absolutely incredible. And I thought, oh, the stars are aligning to help my brother. Uh, and then I managed to get him in there. What the great thing about that was, was um, whatever it was that she did with my brother, which was she gave him some sort of enzymes and she told him to change his diet. And we did a few little odds and sods. And... What happened to him was he managed to believe that he was going to live with it rather than die of it. And for a month or so, it, this, it was really stable. He had a stable life and he started planning things for the future. He planned a trip and he, uh, you know, he did a few things and, um, and he went back to watch a football match and which he loved. And, so, he's, so the, the mindset changed. I know he was very scared. It was horrible seeing your brother scared, by the way, for your big brother, it's really weird. But the, but it, the mindset changed a bit to make him think that he was sort of going to, to live with it. And, um, and so there was a period of time where he, uh, yeah, he, he, he was positive and it was nice to see that, that there was a bit of quality. It was only so short-lived, it was a matter of weeks, but it was so, so short-lived, but it was maybe a month or so. But it, but it was nice to to have that feeling that he he thought there was something he could do and um, he changed his diet to vegetarian and all those sort of things. I'm just thinking about that shift of um, you know being told that you're going to die and then that need to just want to focus on living and so whatever gives you that. I think, you know, certainly in our work in Marie Curie and hospice care, then there's very much a focus on living and trying to support people, um, you know, to, in, in whichever way is best for them um, to, to try and do that. Um, my question was um, just going back to you talking about all those mix of emotions that you had yourself, anger being one of them. How did you manage that? What helped you? So for people listening now who are feeling rage and anger and other emotions, what helped you? Um, well, I have to say that I still struggle to watch things on TV, which are, I call it emotional tourism. We watch a lot of, a lot of things on TV that 
tug at our heartstrings or a horror movies or whatever. And I felt that I lived through a horror movie watching someone that I loved, my brother, um, get a, a, a fatal disease. And the problem with the, the the biggest problem with cancer is the brain. In my brother's case, I suppose, in a lot of cases, is your brain is still active. It's your body's given up. It's a really strange thing. So, so it was just so such an awful experience. Um, once you've been on that roller coaster of horrific emotions, the idea that I want to live it again is. <laughs> it's, it's not for me to be honest with you um the way i dealt with it was uh i'm quite an open person so i don't mind talking about these things like i'm sitting here um talking to you now the best way was to talk to my brother because he was the one going through it so for me for my emotions was to talk to my brother for my brother i think the best thing that he could find was to talk to me and literally conversations about it seemed to be the most cathartic experience um it's a cliche a problem shared is a problem halved but you know it's every time i went to see him and we'd sit in his house and we'd talk and we'd talk about other things as well as the cancer but when we got onto the subject and he'd tell me everything which was happening and stuff i think he felt you know it was more of a release and and i definitely did because i felt like i was there doing something with him and helping him was he able to talk about dying and what he wanted at the end no he was scared and um he didn't want to talk about it he uh we're not religious as a family we had a i think a priest come in and i didn't know anything about this really my parents organized this but we had a priest come in or vicar local vicar or something and we're not religious my brother didn't really get a lot of comfort from that but he had a spiritualist come in as well and got a lot more comfort from that but it, it had changed around to him thinking that he was living for his life um you know it's it's i wish i could have had conversations with him about death if i'm honest with you though it happened so quickly at the end that there was never an opportunity to do that can you tell us about your brother's death, Tim? Yeah, basically, he got really ill. Um, he was really ill and he went upstairs. He's, something had happened to him. Let's see, when it, I've sort of shut out all the medical bit of it now, but, but something happened to him and he was, well, his body was shutting down, basically. Sorry, he, he was at home? Yeah, he'd gone home. He'd been in hospices and things, but he'd gone home and he was feeling okay-ish and he was living at home. And then his, his body sort of shut down. And so he was upstairs and he didn't want to see anyone. And I think he knew. And then um, I went around there to see him and he was tired and he didn't really want to see anybody. And then the next day I got a phone call saying, can you get to the hospital? And uh, I got to the hospital and um, whew, I saw him take his last breaths. And, and yeah, that was it. It was very, it was very rapid over, over sort of 48, 24, 48 hours. Up until then he'd been okay-ish, you know. I don't know how much he was hiding, but he seemed to be quite optimistic and buoyant up until then. So it was a very, very quick last um, few days. Mm -hmm. And you were there 
Were there others there? Yeah, my parents. Yeah. And I always thought I didn't wish I hadn't been there in a way because it was so traumatic. Though um, I do a podcast myself, as you know, and uh, I interviewed Dr. Catherine Mannix uh, in her book about death. And um, I realized that I, it, it changed my mind when I started thinking more about death. And, and I think it's quite a privilege now to be around someone when they die not something that's horrible, something that's, that's, you know, no one wants to see a young man die, but if they're going to die, it's nice that you're there with them when they die. I suppose you come into the world and then you leave the world and there's people there when you come in. Hopefully there's people there when you leave. If, if you're lucky enough to be around someone, I think that's a nice place to be. I think that's interesting, isn't it? That thought of if we're a, death denying society and death is taboo and, um, and and we can't bear thinking about it then that we might then be traumatized by witnessing it but if we talk about it and talk about what it looks like or what it might look like at the end we talk to those who might know about that so you know palliative care professionals or, or hospice professionals we inform ourselves as much as we can and we have open conversations i wonder how much that helps with the experience at the end i'm not suggesting for a second it's not going to be traumatic or awful um but i think as you're saying is there a link there, you know, just between kind of opening yourself to having conversations about death and dying and what it might be like at the end? So therefore the experience might not be as traumatic. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I went for a, a walk with my friend Dave. Um, my friend Dave, he made a few quid and he decided that he would live in the woods. So there's a point to this story, bear with me. And um, so he... He went to, uh, so he, he, he contacted a farmer and he said, look, can I have a piece of your land? I'm going to live in the woods and I want to do this as a little experiment. And uh, he put this sort of wooden shack in and he, and he lived there. He lived between there and, and a house. But he kept coming and going. But the more he lived in the woods, the more he decided to, he didn't know whether he'd spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week there or what. But the more he lived there, the more he wanted to stay there and not go back to sort of sort of our normal society. He's back in normal society now, by the way. And I went to visit him and um, we went for a walk. And the one thing he said, which was great, was he said, look around, look at all the death. And it's, we're fixated with the life for obvious reasons. So you, the next time you go, I did it the other day with a friend and they were, they were going, this is really morbid, Tim. I said, it's not morbid because you know, to quote Elton John, it's the circle of life. People, things have to die. Nothing's here forever. You know, things break down and they go, you know, whatever your religion is or whatever your sense of the world is, something might happen after you die. But, but things in, as we know, in our reality are born and then they die. And when you look around and where a dead tree will fall, there'll be beautiful life comes through it because the light will suddenly come in and other things will be able to grow there. And his point was, he said, it's so strange because you come out and you see bluebells and you go, oh my God, they're amazing. And within a week, 
or two weeks, I'm not sure. They're dead and they look terrible. They're all dead and you've gone from that beauty to the death. And he says, when you live in the woods, you suddenly realize that death is part of life. Now we have, so a long-winded way of saying it, we've become so, so removed from the death experience. No one wants to see a young man at 37 die, but it's really changed my perspective seeing my brother die. And also talking to Catherine Mannix as well, is, and also speaking to a lot of people about, about death since then when, when someone gets into their 90s we go oh it's so sad that they died it's such a shame that they're dying it's like hold on a second no i really don't think it is if you if you have a long life like that it's a beautiful thing you've come in and you're leaving the world and, it, and, it, and it's beauty we at some stage we need to have conversations with people and about life and death my parents are getting older now i talk to them a bit about it a lot more than i used to to be honest with you it was always a subject we never talked about i suppose because we lost or because my brother died basically but you know i think it's one of those subjects that you we should start talking about with people um it, it's going to happen the death rate in this country is still a hundred percent you know you're going to die and god help us if we ever get to the stage where we don't have to die <laughs> i think that i think that'll be worse I, mean, I think that's what we need to do we need to imagine a life without dying and then we'll go oh god i can't wait to die my daughter, she's seven now, but when I think it was about the age of four or five, she started talking to me about my brother a lot. Where is he? What happened to him? He's dead. And she goes, oh, what happens when you die? I said, oh, it's beautiful. You, you fall into a sleep and then you die. And as we said, no one knows what happens, but it's really exciting, isn't it, when you die? And I tried to, you know, it's funny when you talk to a child because you don't want to go, oh, it's so miserable and horrible. You sort of... And I thought that is actually, we don't know what happens. And all we know is from people with near-death experiences is it's a beautiful feeling. I mean, no, one's, no one comes back from being nearly dead and saying it was horrible. They were oh, you go into a beautiful state. So as I say, no one wants to see a young man like my brother die. That's tragic. However, we've got to understand that death happens. We can't cure all deaths. We're doing very well at it, but we've got to try and understand that we need to talk about it. And some cultures do. What everyone always cites the South down in South America, Day of the Dead and all that sort of stuff, you know, where people sort of celebrate death. And, and I think we should celebrate death more. And we should celebrate the idea, especially if you're old, um, people seem to hate the idea that your body is breaking down. And I've always thought, I mean, look, I could be so wrong on this, but when you come into the world as a baby, you pretty much can't do anything and then you learn. And as you go out, I don't think there's anything wrong that you might dribble a bit or something like that. You know, if you've got people around you who love you, it's just, it's just you're coming to the end of your life and, and you're starting to fade away. There's nothing wrong in that. Why do we think that's humiliating? It's not, because it happens to us all. And you're lucky if you're one of the ones who's slowly going rather than something tragic happening to you in, 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 a, in a rapid way. I love that story about the woods. I tell you, next time you go to the woods or you go for a walk anywhere, start looking for the death rather than the life and you'll see some beauty in it, I promise you. The coronavirus pandemic has triggered a wave of bereavement across the country and taken away our ability to be with loved ones and grieve in traditional ways. Marie Curie's new Memory Cloud is an online space to reflect on a loved one's life and share special memories with your friends and family. Visit memorycloud.org.uk. 
I like that idea of whether it's in the woods or elsewhere, but but looking at things through a deaf lens and changing the conversation and having those kind of opportunities to to talk about, you know, death and dying. Can I ask about your brother's funeral? Was that something that was talked about, or did he not talk about any of those things? No, we're a we're a family who definitely um, at the time went just don't talk about death, <laughs> so no one. No one discussed it ever. Um, uh, we're not a religious family. Um, so we, we just did a crematorium. It was absolutely packed out, obviously, because he's young. So, so many people turned up. There was, you couldn't get any room in there. Um, we chose some music, which he liked. And the whole thing was just really... It was nice because so many people turned up. But I, I personally felt that it was, it, yeah, it was, it was lovely that everyone turned up and it was nice. We were all playing his music and stuff, but I didn't feel like he was there anymore. I was looking at the casket before he went in there and it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't him anymore. It was, he'd gone. I saw him go. So, you know, I, I'm not religious, but I do believe we have a soul and um, we're an energy force. That's definitely what we are. And our body is a, just something we're in um so so when i watched his last breath the energy left his body you could see it immediately and he, he had gone what what happens when you die i don't know but it's you're not left in the body that's for sure there's definitely a there's definitely a way that it all starts um the body's just left as an empty vessel and, and my brother who's the consciousness in that in that body the consciousness had left so the 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 funeral really is is just a way of saying um we i don't know what the word is we we recognize your life that's it really and we recognize that that you've died it's quite a strange thing really the funeral but yeah it was it was it's 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 nice that everybody was there and i think that's it everyone can look at each other and so okay we're all here and i suppose for my parents it gives some form of closure though as everybody who's listening to this knows when someone close to you dies there is no real closure it's a time is the closure it takes a long time and it's just time heals and uh, it's just every single day you think about it 30 times a day then 20 then 10 then five, then two, then every other day, and then, and then slowly but surely it keeps going. You never forget, and uh, you know people live on in your memories. But as time goes on, it it just gets easier. That's a good way to describe it. I like that. You know, um, you talked about energy forces. There, do you, do you still feel your brother's energy? Um, see, I don't know about these things. I do think about him. He's definitely in my thoughts. I do. Th- think about you know what what's been more interesting for me recently is the amount of conversations that I have with my mum and dad about him we used to have very little conversations about him which I think is a mistake um by the way but I think that's very much how we were trained in society to do okay don't talk about the dead you know so and I think if you want people to live on they live on through your memories and your conversations and your discussions so when i see my parents will often bring him up and talk about things he did and 
and what he would be thinking and what he'd be. He was very political. We'd, we always have chats about what he'd be thinking about with the current political climates going on in the world and everything else. And so, you know, so he lives on in that way. Um, whether there's a force, I just don't know. I don't know. I, I, w- I want to give you a, a, a clever answer, but my, my knowledge of that, if there's a force, it's the force of the fact that it, he's still in my conscience. He's still there and I think about him and yeah. And so when there's a, when there's a piece of music or something comes onto a television or, you know, sometimes I go back to see my parents, they still live where we grew up and there'll be something I see. He comes straight back into my memory. So, um, so there's definitely, uh, he definitely lives on in my memory. And so, you know, he's still living. Um, yeah. So what helped you with your grief? Talking, always talking. Yeah. Always, always talking. So I just talked a lot about it to people. It's funny because when people talk about, um, they, we, we do this very strange thing, which is someone will say something about cancer. Go, oh, sorry, Tim. It's like, I don't care. <laughs> it's, it's fine. My brother got it. He died of it. And, you know, the, I'm not insulted by that. And then, you know, every now and then some would say a joke, which sort of involved uh, like a, like, I don't know, not a horrible joke, but like, and it would be a laugh about something that it would be to do with cancer or death or something. They go, oh God, I'm so sorry, Tim. And I go, honestly, it really, it honestly, it doesn't matter. That sounds really crass. It wasn't crass what someone was doing. But it was. It doesn't matter. I want to talk about him, and I want to talk about cancer. I'm fine with talking about cancer because it's it's so prevalent in our society. I'm really fine with it all. Um, and I think it's just it. People then get scared to talk to you about about it. And in fairness, I was, you know, I'll be really honest with you. I was quite scared to talk to my mum and dad about it. It took quite a long time before I started going. Should we talk about James again? You know, and let's talk about him and. I suppose what happens is we run away from the emotions as well. And people think that you don't want to bring up the emotions, but you have to go through the emotions and you have to live the emotions. You can't just suppress them constantly. And I do recommend for anyone who, who, who's going through anything to do with this, with a post, um, if, if you're just coming up to somebody dying or post somebody dying, conversations, talk, 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 talk. Oh, uh, and if I... He was very young, so I don't know how how I see it. But if I if I'd definitely known that he would been given a certain amount of time, I would have started talking to him a lot more about death and what it means to him. Though it was awkward in our situation, because, well, not awkward, but he'd got his mindset that he was going to live with it and that he wasn't going to kill him. So I don't think he wanted to discuss the idea of death. He was fit. he'd been drummed into him that it's positive thinking that keeps him alive. So we didn't want to talk about it. So, um, yeah, but, but discussions, it's all about discussions. And I think that's a really positive message, you know, the discussions, because often what happens, people have said, um, I'm scared to talk about it because I'm, because, because I think I'm not going to be able to cope with it or I'm going to feel too overwhelmed or so that, that, that suppressing it is because there's a fear about talking about it and whether it's talking about death and dying or whether it's talking about bereavement and so 
you know, it's good to hear from those who've experienced it. And in my experience, having talked to many, many, many people, everybody says it helps to talk about it. Mm. So I think it is a, it's, it's a really important message. Um, I want to ask you whether you think about your death. Yeah, of course. Um, when you're a young man, I don't know if it's the same as uh, if you're, well, I suppose just if you're a young person, but you feel like you're immortal. I suppose that's what the youth is, isn't it? Just feeling immortal. And then um, you get to see your brother die and you go, oh, hold on a second. We can die. And yeah, it's definitely changed my views on death and what I think about it. Um, I'd like to say I'm not scared of death, but I, there is a little bit of me, which is like, oh, I'm not sure. I'd like to live a, a, a full life and I'd, I'd like to live a complete life as well. I'd like to, to see it all the way to the end. And, but yeah, the idea of, yeah, the idea of dying is, is less scary to me these days. I, it has to happen. And, and the root of all uh, good mental health is acceptance. You have to accept reality. And if you don't accept something, then, you, then you, it's just going to torture you forever. You have to accept it. And so we, again, we've gone back round, but as a, you know, if somebody dies, you have to accept eventually that they're dead. You can't keep saying, I want them to be alive again, because it's just not reality. It takes time, but you have to do it. Um, and, and as a society, we need to accept the fact that we're going to die. And it's such a shame we're not discussing it more, really, I think, because I think we are, <laughs> we're, ma we're making it hellish for ourselves. We're, we really are. No one wants to die and no one wants to discuss it. So you said you are less scared than you were, but still a bit scared. Um, is it the dying bit or the what happens after or which bit you're still scared of? Well, it's, well the, the main bit is I've got three daughters and I want to see as much of their lives as possible. Now, you know, everyone can understand that. Um, then there's the uh, fear of the unknown. Um, uh, you know, fear is not knowing. That's, that's what a lot of fear is. So, uh, you know, if you're scared of something, go and face that fear, go and do it. But I don't recommend people try and die to, <laughs> to face that. It only happens once. So, so you, you never get to know whether you can, you know, if you're, you're scared of heights, start going up tall buildings or something, you know, and eventually you'll become accustomed to it and realize the fear will go. Um, we never know what happens when you die. So you can't lose the fear of that, that everyone has that bit of fear in them. Unless I suppose you have a religion and you really do, throw all your faith into that religion all your you know and and then you absolutely know what happens when you die but even then i suppose some people who have religions still might have a few doubts <laughs> whether it is or isn't but we don't know so that yes there's always going to be a fear there so we often talk on this podcast but also we talk as an organization about planning for you know death and dying because we know that if people talk about it and plan for it then often there are better outcomes one example of that's writing a will um you know some of those practical things or even having conversations with those around you about funeral wishes or where you might want to be when you die yeah i well i've i've done my will 
Um, I've made it as simplistic as possible for my daughters so that uh, if something happens to me, it, 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 it's simple. And I've told them that I want um, my funeral to be as simple as possible. I want them to have a celebration of my life, not um, a celebration of my death. So, you know, I know, I don't think we do it over here, but in America, they have those 24 hour deaths now. It's happened to a few of the big stars. I think it happened to Prince and maybe David Bowie and a few of people like that where they die and then they're cremated within 24 hours. And then I'm not adverse to doing something like that because you then can have a celebration afterwards. So I said to my kids, I'd just like them to get together somewhere and have a, have a drink for me. That's, that's it. But I have said to them, just don't waste all your time planning because my, my opinion is, you know, I hope I'm not upsetting anyone here because some people love the idea of planning for someone because it, it, it's a, a cathartic experience for them to plan a funeral and, and all that. But what I would like my kids to do is get on with their lives. And I know for a fact, well, I feel for a fact watching my brother die is the, the, if you call it a soul, that's the best way of doing it. It leaves the body so that I'm not there anymore anyway. So, you know, you're just, you're just getting rid of the vessel I was hanging out in. That's, my, that's, that's how I see it. So I'm like, you know, make it simple for you as possible and then celebrate the soul, which could quite rightly still be in the room. So it sounds like there's some open conversations in your household about death and dying. I've always been, yeah, I've always been very open with my kids. Well, I mean, yeah, and, and of course there's an open conversation because we've experienced it. And so once you've actually experienced it as a, as a family, then these conversations will always continue. But yeah, I know it's definitely a conversation I've had with them a load of times and said, just don't waste time on it because I'm not there. And it's funny because I'm not religious, but I don't believe I'm left in that body. So don't waste any time with it. I've left. I love that story you told earlier as well about, you know, your seven-year-old daughter saying, talk, talking about your brother and asking about him and asking about death and where he was. Because I think some people who I know with young children, when they bring it up, the first thing will be, oh, don't talk about that or don't ask about that. So silencing it, yeah, you know, straight away. That's the beginning of it, isn't it? I mean, that's just the, the whole taboo of it. Someone, someone told me once that, there's a couple of reasons why we don't like talking about death. Uh, one of them is connected, apparently, and I don't know this is, is, is 100% fact, but during the wars, the First World War and the Second World War, because people were losing a lot of people and they were quite close together, those wars, it was easier just not to talk about death because everyone was dying so much. So it sort of became, let's talk about life and living. And that kind of makes sense because, because we went through the wars, those wars. And then... The other thing is um, in the, why we struggle with death is in the middle of the last century, we started being able to heal people. R remember years ago, there was a lot of infant mortality. You know, that, the infant mortality rate was high last, at the beginning of last century. And, and it's, we've got it right down now. You know, people had six kids because they'd lose two of them, you know, or three of them or something. It's, it's, people aren't dying as much as they used to die. And so we're now thinking no one should die ever so i think that's why we've become so so terrified of death but with, when i talk to my child it really is and, and it, i do genuinely believe it's it could be one of the most exciting times for all of us nobody knows what happens when you die i mean obviously religions say they do but they don't really nobody knows exactly what happens when you die all we know is it seems to be quite a nice experience for people who've died and come back so 
you know, something happens and you don't know what it is and we're all going to go through it and we're all going to experience it. So when that happens, maybe we should be looking forward to it in a way and going, wow, this is exciting. Because when you were born, it was, you know, an experience where you came into, into the world and something amazing happened. When you die, you never know. It might be amazing. Just before we finish, Tim, I want to ask, how would you like to be remembered? Oh, wow. That's a big question. Have I got a big answer for you? First of all, the only people I really care about remembering me and my family, which is uh, hopefully I'll outlive my parents and uh, that'll be my three daughters. And I would hope they thought I was a loving, caring person. And most of all, someone who believed in the truth. I think living a truthful life um, is, is, is important and telling yourself the truth and telling others around you the truth is something that I believe is, is, is the key to life. Live the truth. It's very hard to do. It's very hard to stop lying to yourself. And it's very hard. A lot of we're, we're told by society to constantly lie, but living the truth, I think is the, is the way forward. And hopefully they see me as a loving person who believed in the truth, but mainly loving. <laughs> Tim Lovejoy. Thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie Couch and thank you for sharing James's story and being so open and so honest. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is made by Marie Curie, a national charity that supports people affected by terminal illness. For more information and support, you can visit our website, mariecurie.org.uk. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Panoceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.